Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVNH Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, psychology and neuroscience in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my colleague, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVNH Consulting North America. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. I'm very happy to be here for this episode and delighted to be introducing our guest, Julia Dar. Julia is the Managing Director and Partner at Boston Consulting Group. She joined Boston Consulting Group in 2009 and is a core member of the people and organization, industrial goods, public sector, and social impact practices. She founded and leads BCG's Behavioral Science Lab and the firm's Behavioral Science Network, Be Smart, and is a member of BCG's Global Change Management Leadership Team. Julia was previously private secretary to the Deputy Prime Minister and Prime Minister of Finance in New Zealand. Julia is the co-author of Building Resilient Organizations, published by the Project Management Institute in 2002, and the Decision Makers Playbook, published by the Financial Times in 2019. Her TED Talks on productive disagreement and constructive conversations have been viewed more than 8.5 million times. Julia, welcome to our Be Good podcast. Suzanne, Eric, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So, Julia, thank you again so much uh, for joining us today for this episode of Be Good. Um, I would like to start with a kind of background regarding your uh, beginning of your career. I think you received your master in public policy from a small university, Harvard Kennedy School, and a BA in economic and social science from Sydney University. And I am always curious to know how our guest came to be interested in behavioral science. Could you tell us, uh, Julia, how you discovered Beside? I would love to. So I think the story starts even um, in between two of those places. Um, as Suzanne shared, I started off my career working um, in New Zealand. And New Zealand is an interesting country for all kinds of different public policy um, experiments and interventions and different models of delivering services to people. One of the things that at the time the government of New Zealand was really focused on was this idea of an integrated data infrastructure. And that doesn't sound like a very human thing, but it's an incredibly important intervention. It's the idea that we can understand across the whole of someone's life what the value of the services that they might get from the government are, how different interventions might change the trajectory of their lives. So, for example, um, think about a young person um, who might be, through absolutely you know, no fault of their own, um, involved in the foster care system. They might be um, part of a family where someone is or has been formally incarcerated, um, you know, gang involved or gang affiliated, for instance. And all of the interventions that we might early on do for a young person um, in their lives might actually really positively influence their trajectory. It might feel like a lot of money upfront for the government. Often it is a lot of money um, upfront, but over the course of someone's life, um, you can make a material difference, but you might also end up saving money um, for the government. Now, none of that sounds very behavioral, but if you think about it for a moment, it's actually helping public servants say, oh, like, I can do I can do, do some intertemporal discounting here. Like, how do I actually bring forward my investments and understand that I am preventing both much more misery, much more sadness down the road for an individual, but also much more complexity um, for, um, for governments as we try to serve citizens and society. After, after I had um, done that, and I think this was a you know, really admirable starting point for the way in which we might be more creative, more thoughtful, more human about 
the way in which government can deliver services um, to human beings. I, as part of my work at Boston Consulting Group in Australia, um, spent a lot of time working on um, what at the time we called citizen-centric service delivery. This is a common and very like, obvious idea right now. It, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's the idea that people are entitled to a customer experience from government or a good quality service from government to be served through the channels that they want in the way that they want at the moment that they want. But at the time, 15 years ago, it was a relatively new idea. And so being able to see that piece as well, how do we do really long range planning and how in the moment do we help you interact with us by phone, by text, online, whatever might be most relevant for you given your needs and circumstances. So it brought me um, into the world of behavioral science, into the idea that um, people can positively influence not only the direction of their own lives through the thoughtful application of science, but you know, choice architects of all forms have the ability to do that as well. Yeah, yeah, very clear. Thank you. Uh, could you share and do you have uh, any mentors that had a particularly strong influence uh, on you or uh, any researcher or the people who have played an influential role in the beginning of your career or your passion for behavioral science? Let me share a story about two of my colleagues. So at a, a small BCG meeting in 2015, um, we were fortunate enough to host Dr. David Halpin, CEO of the Behavioral Insights team, for a discussion with some of our colleagues working in the public sector practice. So I had the opportunity to interview him. All of us had the opportunity to learn from him, not only um, about how you use behavioral science to affect policy change, but what it might mean to institutionalize behavioral science inside the government. And one of our um, practice area leaders, actually, um, two of them, um, Alison Bailey and Grant Freeland, um, popped up their hands and said, do you think the work that you are doing has application in the private sector as well? Which sparked a spirited conversation, some you know, um, the insight that you know, all of us in the behavioral science community make frequently that this is a place where government leads the private sector, which is not always the case, and that that's surprising and that there was perhaps unlimited opportunity to do a better service for employees, for customers, as well as for citizens. Now, Eric, I mean, you, of course, have been at the vanguard of this, of how do we um, bring behavioral sciences into the world of work, into the private sector. But at the, at the time, this was still an emerging discussion. This provocative question, do, do you think this has application for the private sector, I think really helped shift the trajectory, not only of my own life and career, but also the way in which here at BCG, we think about the application of behavioral sciences as not only an incredibly important tool for governments and for policymakers, but also a fundamental capability that private sector organizations um, must have if they're to serve all of their stakeholders responsibly. Now, of course, we're not there yet. We're, we are far from the idea that behavioral science is institutionalized in large organizations. In some cases, we're very far from the idea that it's welcome, accepted, well understood in all of those places. But we are making positive steps in the right direction every day. So, Julia, we'd like to talk more about behavioral science at BCG. As we mentioned, you founded and lead BCG's Behavioral Science Lab and the firm's Behavioral Science Network, Be Smart. So can you tell us more about the inspiration behind the development of behavioral science within BCG and how that all came about? Absolutely. I do think a lot of it came from this very critical meeting that I described where, um, you know, as always, a small group of passionate individuals um, said, we think that there is something here. Um, for your listeners who might not be familiar um, with Boston Consulting Group, one of our core values is what we call the art of the possible or expanding the art of the possible. One of the things that I think this creates in our culture is 
we have a very, very high appetite for new ideas, a very high willingness to try, willingness to experiment in the broadest sense. And so a, a small number of people with a lot of enthusiasm can take something a long way inside BCG is the way that I think about it. And so thinking about that meeting as the crucible moment for behavioral science at BCG, um, we then went on to um, start to put in place some of the foundations. So number, <laughs> number one is, do we have some clients who also um, care about this? What would we imagine um, a service for um, both private and public sector organizations, social sector organizations to look like um, from BCG? What would it mean to have a behaviorally informed consulting project or a behaviorally informed transformation. Getting clear about all of these kinds of questions. We are still asking these questions all the time, um, by the way. And from there, um, we started to build out the community within BCG. It seems to all of us, I think, surprising now to say at the beginning, we had a very small number of people in the tens of people in our organization of thousands um, with experience or background in behavioral science. And this was the beginning of our behavioral science at BCG community. Today, that community is 400 people with the experience um, from a previous career, academic training, um, previous um, research, um, both in the academic and practitioner sense or experience within BCG um, in um, delivering or incorporating behavioral science into the, into the way in which we work. And from that broad network of folks, um, we are then able to help our clients identify opportunities where we might intervene not only with strategy, which is what I think lots of people know BCG for, but also behaviorally and begin to shift the probability that the changes that leaders and organizations hope will happen through strategy um, will actually happen through effective implementation, through the behavior change, what consultants always call the ways of working inside an organization. That's what I'm really focused on at the moment. How do we help people um, adopt change, cope with change really well? And how do we ensure that people are prepared to transition to an increasingly complicated, more demanding, cognitively and otherwise world? Amazing. So could you tell us more about how the Behavioral Science Lab works together with the other moving parts of BCG? And could you share with us maybe some typical work that the Behavioral Science Lab does? Um, I would. I would love to. Um, so the, think about a couple of different um, scenarios. Um, it might be um, that someone it says to us, like, we, we, we might have a large program already going with a client. There might be a new strategy. An organization might have merged with another. Um, for instance, they, they might have bought or, or, or sold part of their business. They might be trying to move from a, a primarily analog organization to a primarily digital organization. And so, one dilemma that someone might bring to the behavioral science lab is well, how do we have a behaviorally informed communications approach to that? Um, what are the things that we um, need to tell people? What are the choiceful moments in which we reach out to people? What are the sources of influence um, within the organization that might make the probability of that message um, being heard really well? Um, and so we can support that in two ways. Of course, the first is saying that that's a well-studied problem. This is well-traveled ground. There are some principles from behavioral science that are really informative that you might incorporate into your communications. Think you know, personalization of your messages, radical simplification of your messages, clear calls to action, um, you know, providing a de-risking change for people. We're doing some new work right now on change aversion. And 
so we can give that guidance up front of saying all of these things are likely, very much not certain, but likely um, to help. And if you have an understanding of these principles, and especially if um, both the BCG team and the client team has an understanding of these principles, we're likely to have a more human, more compassionate, more behaviorally informed change experience. Um, sometimes um, people bring us a problem um, that is like by definition um, requires experimentation. Which of these frames are more likely um, to um, appeal um, to people? Which of these um, messages might be um, highly engaging for people? Which might be less engaging? Um, and then there are like much more um, complex, multifaceted, um, tangled species of problems, which also get me really excited. So think about, I mean, the problem that we work on most frequently today to define it very broadly is how do we help humans trust machines? So all work or not, much work of the future, depending on whose current estimates um, you believe, will depend on a good quality collaboration between a human and a machine. The only way in which that collaboration is good quality is if the human trusts the machine, because accuracy, the you know, accuracy of inputs drives the quality of the machine. The quality um, of the outputs that that machine generates creates trust by the human in the machine, which increases the willingness to increase inputs into the machine. And, and so it goes. How do you get humans to trust a machine? That is an unbelievably nuanced and complicated um, behavioral problem, strategic problem that in every single instance requires very careful um, thought, discovery, inquiry, and hypothesis testing, um, by the way, through experimentation and otherwise. And so that problem that we are working on with a number of our clients in all kinds of different settings, all kinds of different machines, um, is the one that I am, I am really excited about. The final thing we do, and we do this um, with, our, with our colleagues at the BCG Henderson Institute. The BCG Henderson Institute is BCG's internal think tank, where I am a fellow, is to create research that we hope builds the, builds the field, both the field of behavioral science, but also the field that we broadly think about as the science of changing. Um, and there we focus a lot on how we can understand why organizations have done such a poor job historically um, of successfully changing, why the odds of success in large-scale organization, um, organizational change are still so low, why the returns from many of these programs are still surprisingly disappointing despite a lot of investment. And so that, those are all of the ways in which we try to be of service to our colleagues, to our clients, to the communities we work in. So what about the Be Smart Network? How is that organized and what's the objective of that? Well, firstly, it's a way for all of us to keep track of one another um, and all of the wonderful work that is happening and has happened across the BCG behavioral science community, both in people's previous careers and the work that they are doing right now. So um, we have a very animated um, Slack community because, you, as you can imagine, our colleagues in the network are distributed across BCG's um, network of 90 plus offices around the world. Um, we take the opportunity for people to be able to introduce themselves and their past experiences into, um, into the network. It is always fascinating um, what people have done previously. Um, we have a number of colleagues who have been very involved um, in founding, for example, the own countries, governments, behavioral insights team. We have many people with very deep um, and intriguing research um, from not only um, behavioral economics, but game theory, consumer psychology. And then people always surprise you with the, with the types of things that they have. So Julia, you also created the hashtag behavioral brief. Could you tell our attendees and our listeners about what's the purpose of that and maybe give us some examples of recent behavioral briefs? Hashtag behavioral briefs is our weekly newsletter um, where we try to share useful um, and we hope intriguing behavioral insights with our, with our community. You can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us on Twitter as well. 
the goal of behavioral briefs is to take one idea from the behavioral sciences. Often we hope something that deserves a little bit more attention or a dilemma that we think that people might be wrestling with in their lives or at work and give not only some practical advice, but try to give the science behind it as well to elevate the work of really outstanding researchers and bridge the academic practitioner gap, bridge the research and human gap. Let me share a couple of examples. So the, this week's behavioral brief, for instance, which uh, people um, have been very engaged by, um, is about what we are calling textual overload and how to manage um, text-based communications in organizations. So, for example, for listeners, have you ever had the experience where you get an email or a text message, a Slack or a Microsoft Teams message, and someone just says, hi, or do you have a minute? I, I feel stressed just saying it. I'm sorry for any listeners who feel stressed as I, as I said it. This type of communication happens all the time in organizations. It's stressful. It's unnecessary. Maybe it's not the worst thing that's going to happen to you today, but it's surely not going to be the best thing that happens to you today. Imagine then if that person is also your boss or your boss's boss and the situation, um, the situation just gets worse. What we are trying to do here is um, give people some guidance to say, you know what it might be helpful to do? It's helpful to say hi and why. Do you have a minute to talk about next week's meeting as a perfect example um, of what a what a high and why might look like? That's an example. Sometimes we also try to share our own research. So one of the things that we are focused on is how do we how do we get engagement for the things that we are trying to that we're trying to measure so for example we have a we have a tool we call it the change energy assessment it measures um, how well people are coping with change in behavioral science terms it's basically a composite measure of a person's self-efficacy and the amount of bandwidth both cognitive and otherwise that they currently have of course, in order for that to be useful, we need people to take it on a regular basis. We also very often need people to take our surveys either as a one-off or on a regular basis. Um, so we're constantly testing what works to get people to take our surveys or to get people um, to, uh, to engage in doing so. Um, and so testing all kinds of different things like do, do lotteries work? Not great for us, it turns out. Um, does a lottery with an escalating contribution? If Eric takes it, we will put a dollar in the pot. If Suzanne takes it, we'll put a dollar in the pot. If Julia takes it, we'll put a dollar in a pot. And then there will be a lottery. Wildly successful for us, um, it turns out. Do people, when we're in a position to pay them to take the survey, what do they actually prefer um, in terms of a reward? Um, for some of our participants, um, non-cash rewards, it turns out, uh, uh, are highly valued. So we like to be able to share those as well. What else is going on in our world that we're testing? So uh, congrats for a behavioral brief. I think it is uh, really, at least for me, and I'm sure that uh, I am not the only one, uh, very uh, insightful. And uh, uh, each time I enjoy reading your behavioral uh, uh, brief. So thanks for, uh, for this. Uh, Julia, we know that BCG is one of the worldwide leading firms regarding change and transformation. And I would like to go uh, deeper on your vision regarding the specific interest of using learnings and methods of behavioral science in change and transformation projects. So um, from your perspective, what is the interest of using behavioral science to transform organization? The place where I start for all of this is the returns from change programs, the returns on change management are often really disappointing. And we often say at the beginning of a large effort, change management will be very important. All of us nod and we say, yes, it will be very important. We don't always resource it in the same way. We don't always give it the same amount of leadership, um, attention and care as other parts um, of, the, of the transformation um, process. I think that's a mistake. I also think it is possible to have a much more 
human-centric and science-informed approach to change management. And I think organizations that are serious about change management, about doing change well, about having whatever change they are trying to create actually work, should also be committed to doing that. At the moment, I'm very focused on the idea that if we could approach change management as a customer experience, as a customer service in organizations, we might get quite different outcomes. This, Suzanne, brings us back right to citizen-centric service delivery at the beginning of our conversation. Let me give you the contrast. Sometimes when change management programs don't work, in organizations and people do a post-mortem to try and explain or understand what happened, you will hear people say things like, um, our, people didn't really understand what the system was capable of. Like we had a new technology and people just never used it to its full advantage. Or people didn't pay attention to our communications or you know we had things certain activities that we needed people to perform and they didn't follow through they weren't accountable um sometimes you even hear people um say things that are more jarring people didn't understand what we were trying to do or people didn't prioritize what we are what we were trying to do um and people say, oh, okay, like that's an, that's an explanation for a failure of change management. If you contrast that, for example, if we had a marketing organization um, or a sales process that was really disappointing, that people fell out of the funnel all the way through, like lots of people came in the front door, but they never got past your homepage or they looked at your product and then didn't take any action. They put things in their virtual or real world cart um, and never um, never followed through. Or they didn't respond to the first outreach from a sales agent. And your chief marketing officer said, ah, oh, yes, I mean, well, like these consumers, they're, they're just not very accountable. They don't really understand the sales motion. They, they're just not focused on the differences between our products. They're just not prioritizing what we have to offer. We would laugh them out of the room. Like this is not an acceptable response. You can't say, oh, the, the problem, <laughs> like the problem is the consumers. No. The, the problem is the process. And if we said change in organizations is a customer experience, and if you run a big transformation, you are here to deliver a customer service to people, I think that might fundamentally change the way in which we operated. Let me give you an example of a very modest, um, humble intervention that we are trying at the moment at one of our clients who is trying to do something really, really big and bold and have committed to this idea that we can give people an excellent service, give our colleagues, employees an excellent service along the way. Anytime in any part of the change program, that you you deal with someone from the for, let's call them from the central team. You might participate in an interview. You might be part of a focus group. You might get a newsletter. You might go to a meeting. Whatever it is, when you are when you're when you're touched by the change process, immediately afterwards, um, you get a survey. It's really short. It says, "How was your experience today? What emotions are you feeling about the change program?" Because we never ever ask people. What emotion do you feel about the change program? Because the only acceptable answer that we allow in, in a corporate context is excitement. It's the only acceptable answer. You have to be very excited about the change program. No. And our research shows um, that most of the time, people are not. Somewhere between a third and a half of people, when you actually ask them what emotion they are feeling, will say, the emotion I am feeling is anxious. And then also, but please like, give us some advice, not some feedback, give us some advice because we know that it is much better to ask for advice than ask for feedback. If you are seeking a high quality actionable response about where you would like the central team to focus over the, um, over the coming weeks and months. And then rate our experience, like, you know, like rate um, how you felt, um, how you feel we're doing so far. We look at that every week. And we um, identify um, 
what the interventions are, what we could think the um, trends are. You understand that at big moments, people are going to feel um, more anxious. That's okay, as long as they don't feel that way persistently. Um, and we also asked the question, would you like a personalized follow-up from anything you're saying? And if so, of course, please tell us what your name is. And everyone who asks for a personal follow-up gets a personal follow-up. That's a very small example. And of course, over time, I hope we evolve um, to much more robust, much more systematic examples. But that's one really small way. And I think all organizations um, could start to intervene in small ways to say, when we change or when we are asking other people to change more accurately, we're trying to deliver a customer service. Um, you mentioned in a recent post and article that the biggest lie, let me read, in every transformation is people like change. Could you elaborate uh, on this and what helps against this uh, kind of change aversion? Absolutely. We are so excited to start a conversation around this idea that Change aversion is a real phenomenon um, inside organizations, in, inside all of us. Um, it will be immediately familiar and accessible to your listeners. Change aversion, much like loss aversion, um, is a kind of instinctive allergic reaction that people appear to have um, to change. One of the ways in which we sought to identify this sort of test whether um, change aversion might be um, <laughs> might be might be real, right? Or might be present in our organizations um, is a small study where basically we say to people, "There, there is a change. How do you um, how do you feel about this? What are your uh, what reactions do you have to this? What valence do you want to put on this change?" At that moment, with this information, Eric and Suzanne, you and, you, we all know there is only one rational response. That rational response is a classic economist response. It depends. We don't know anything yet. It could be good, could be bad. There is a change. What do you think? Um, it is the like one moment in which the like neutral answer on the Likert scale is the is the correct answer. And people don't answer that way. More than half, roughly 52% of folks say, oh, I feel unfavorable about that. You don't even know what it is. The, the, the change might be wildly positive. You don't know what it is. And yet you feel negative about it. That's an important insight for people who are trying to mobilize other people um, to action in an organization. Um, You know, my friend and colleague, Bob Wu, um, who with Professor Michael Hiscox helped start the um, Australian behavioral economics team of Australia, Beta, he says, you know, there are only two things that people hate, the way things are and change. I think this is right. People hate change. And if you could go into a change program with that humility of saying, I'm starting with a lot of obstacles. Like I'm starting like, I don't know, several hundred feet back from the start line. I have a lot of work to do to build trust, to build confidence, to demonstrate value before I ask people to do anything for me. But even more importantly, before I tell people to get excited, before I tell people what the appropriate emotion to feel is. Because as I said, we separately ask people You know, tell us about the who are experiencing a lot of change, who are part of a transformation. I don't name um, from a kind of classic scale, like the emotion that you're feeling, the dominant emotion um, that people in professional settings are feeling is anxiety, more than inspired, more than proud. And so that's a that's an important lesson. Change aversion is a real phenomenon, and we ignore it at our peril. There seems to be a compounding factor as well. And we're excited to share this research in the in the next couple of weeks. We call this idea change distance. So I've talked at length, like we're all change averse, we're all having a hard time with change, except for one group, senior leaders. Senior leaders, when you say, 
there, there's, a, there's a change coming. What do you think? Nearly two thirds of them, nearly two thirds of them say, that sounds great. Like, okay, I'm favorably inclined towards that. They don't all say it's great. About two thirds of them say I'm favorably inclined. Again, that's a wild and irrational response. You don't know what it is. It could be terrible. Um, there is a change coming. Okay, let's get after it. That gap, your 52% unfavorables, you know, almost two thirds favorables for senior leaders, that is change distance in your organization. So when senior leaders get out there to launch a program or to talk about ongoing initiatives in the organization and they say, I'm really excited about this, I think, or oh, I think this is exciting. They're not lying to you. Sometimes people in the organization say, oh, like the, you know, this is the, um, this is the corporate party line. Of course, they have to say this. Maybe that's probably part of it as well. But they also appear, this segment of folks do appear to genuinely believe that in a way that people um, who don't have those same senior leadership roles and responsibilities do not. So, wow, what do we do then to be able to bridge that gap? What do we, what do, we do um, to both help um, inoculate people against change aversion or help them overcome it? Um, and what do we do to help leaders um, move closer towards the, organ the organization and the folks that they serve? That's what we're really focused on now. Mm -hmm. And uh, from the beside and your perspective, uh, what are the key factors to be successful at uh, transforming and changing uh, an organization? Number one is the idea that the people who are involved, the human beings who you need to do something differently, um, need to feel um, authentically that their work is of great importance. And I think there's a nuance here that is sometimes missed in large change programs. It's tempting for us to say that the program is of great importance or that the future will be much better because of the work that we do now. And those things are surely true many times, but that is absolutely not the same as saying to someone, Eric, the work that you are going to do, the analysis that you will run this week, the recommendations that you will create will help us make a higher quality decision. The work that you are doing is very important. And if we think about all of um, Adam Grant's tremendous body of work around task significance, we might start to say, yeah, that makes a, that makes a ton of sense. Actually, if people feel um, significance around the work that they are doing, not the, not, not the mission that they are serving, but the work that they are doing, um, this is likely um, to be able um, to increase the increase the odds of success. The second thing, of course, and this is um, born out in our change aversion research, though is absolutely not a new idea, is that agency control over the process um, is a really important factor in people's ability to feel positively towards the change. I think this is a well-known idea. I, in the organizations in which I um, travel, People talk about this a lot. We don't have good quality mechanisms in general to help people do this, to set and adjust deadlines, for instance, to change the way in which they might report out to senior, senior leaders as a for instance, but agency um, is really, really important. A curious thing that we are digging into more at the moment, so please consider this a, a highly tentative idea for now, is how assured do people need to be of the success of the initiative to be willing to take some first steps, willing to um, be a little bit more favorably inclined towards it? The reason that we are curious about this is I think there is a tendency in organizations to try and de-risk everything, to say to people, it, it will definitely work. Like there's, there's a guarantee of 
success. Um, you, there's nothing um, that you should worry about. It appears that people need a little bit less reassurance about the probability of success. It's kind of a confounding idea based on everything else that we've talked about. That like about 60% probability, when you say like, how sure do you, would you need to be? People say, oh, I'd need to be like about 60% sure that it would work. Of course, like we want to investigate much further, like what does 60% sure mean um, to anyone when you ask them to assign um, a probability. Um, but that's a, that's an interesting lesson for us to explore further that we don't always, we can speak more openly, transparently, honestly to people. We don't have to hold back from saying something because we're not certain that it will get, it will work. We're not certain um, that it will get funded. The final piece comes out of some work that my colleague Martin Reeves, who is the chairman of BCG's Henderson Institute has done recently around super projects. Um, so a super project is um, something like um, the Apollo mission um, to put a person on the moon or um, Project Lightspeed to um, generate um, a COVID-19 vaccine. One of uh, the really important lessons coming out of those super projects um, from Martin's perspective is the importance of a heroic mission as well. The idea that like we are in service of a heroic mission, put a person on the moon, uh, build a vaccine 10 times, build and bring to market a vaccine 10 times faster um, than might ever have been done previously. And I think that connection back to story, narrative, inspiration is also sometimes lacking that we don't often ask, like what's the, what's the heroic mission in front of us? Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So Julia, we'd like to change topic a little bit to a couple of topics that you've previously talked about. The first being related to your TED talk, how to disagree productively and find common ground. So can you tell us why you think this is important and what recommendations you have to help people to speak up and have a discussion, but not have a problematic conflict? There are so many things that we think and do not say, um, as Jerry Maguire um, would say in the movie, Jerry Maguire. There are so many things that we think and do not say. Sometimes that's a very good thing, by the way. <laughs> I'm not trying to get everyone to say all of the things they think, just to be, just to be clear. I also am of the view that most significant problems in relationships, in organizations, in society um, are not improved by not talking about them and that for many of them, they are only improved by talking about them. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to give people um, both some tools as well as a little bit of evidence for why constructive disagreement, constructive conflict might actually be helpful for our relationships, for the way in which we deal with each other, might increase the chance that you solve a problem and in the long run might make you much happier as well. We don't have great tools to do this. There are not necessarily great opportunities for most folks to be able to learn this in the course of their lives. And it is absolutely a learnable skill when people say, oh, I'm not comfortable with conflict. Yeah, I know, not, none of us are, that's okay. It's a learnable, teachable, practicable skill. I was very, very fortunate early in my life to be able um, to be trained in and then practice for a lot of years and um, formal debates, like literal, um, the public speaking of disagreements. Not everyone has that opportunity, but there are a ton of practices from debate that you might be able to apply in your own life that let you cope with people, interact with people, trust people who you feel are very different from you and build stronger connections between you. Lovely. And the second topic was something that you wrote about in a recent article where you discussed what you called the busyness of business. So can you tell us what that challenge is and what are some recommendations you have to ban busy? We were incredibly inspired by our friends, collaborator, and person that we are just a big fan of, Professor Ashley Willens at Harvard Business School, who, as you all know, um, has a phenomenal body of research on time, our relationship to time and the way in which we um, use and exchange time and money. Um, 
And you actually had asked this like, provocative question of like, what's the, what's the role of busyness um, as part of our um, identity? So we did a little bit of inquiry uh, around, the, around the topic and we found a couple of um, really important um, things. Um, number one, I think people um, generally identify, identify themselves as busy. Like people say, I, like, I, I feel busy a lot of the time. Okay. Um, good to know. More importantly, um, it seems that some people, um, disproportionately women, tend to hide um, how busy they are. Um, they are inclined um, not to um, not to not to say how busy they are. And when we ask people, what's your what's your rationale and motivation for doing so? Is it you don't want opportunities to pass you by? You don't want to look like you're not in control of the situation. One of the things we heard from some of our respondents was um, a desire to um, protect and role model um, to mentees, earlier career professionals, um, a desire not to give the signal that the like the, the next job or the, the, the promotable job was not sustainable. Um, I, I think that's fascinating. So we said, well, what are the possible implications of that? Like busyness is actually such an unhelpful and vague concept. And yet when we ask people, you know, in a professional context, like you ask someone like how they're doing, I'm very busy is a, is a really frequent response. And I don't, I don't really know what, what we're going to do with that when we hear it. We have a couple of ideas. Number one, indeed, we would like to ban busy. We think it is not a very helpful term in the same way that you know, there is a public conversation around the idea that we should ban bossy, that we should stop telling um, particularly girls, young women, um, that, they are, that they're bossy because that's loaded um, with gender stereotypes. Busy is a different phenomenon altogether, but we think banning busy in the same way um, could be really helpful. Why? We think it might lead to a more specific conversation about how much work are you actually doing? What are you doing? And ideally, more importantly, in organizations, what are you doing that's low value? Like you could be very busy and not very productive. You could be not very busy and very productive. And it would be much better if we were able to, frankly and honestly, have that discussion. That's number one. Number two is we hope it also creates a way to surface additional opportunities more equitably. So thinking about um, all the things that go along with the world of work, some non-promotable tasks, some promotable tasks, by the way, but often discretionary from people's main job. The way that those get assigned in organizations um, is, I think is very, it's not random, um, but it's noisy. Um, it is a, like people will default to the first person that they think would be good for it. And if that person says yes, like this person um, will end up arranging this round table, writing this white paper, hosting this town hall, um, whatever, whatever it is. There could be an opportunity in organizations to say, here are, here are the discretionary opportunities. Let me make it available broadly and allow people to volunteer. Let's let people calibrate themselves how busy um, they really are, how energized they are by a particular opportunity. People should not have to hide how busy they are because they fear that some exciting opportunity will pass them by, um, which was Ashley's fundamental question. She said, um, sometimes people, she had observed that sometimes people worry about asking her or express concern about asking her for help or advice or to do something to speak at an event that might actually be highly valuable for her because they quote, know that she is very busy. That, that might be a risky assumption to make. And so let's find a way to challenge that assumption. And instead of having assumptions, instead of having vague terms like busy, like, Let's have systems to inquire about the real and valuable work people are doing. Julia, I would like to talk a little with you uh, about uh, a debate, and I'm sure you have read uh, Michael Alford's uh, recent manifesto. 
regarding the application of uh, behavioral science. So we don't have time to discuss uh, uh, in detail this document, but to, I would like to have your uh, uh, point of view regarding three criticism and after some advice you could give to infuse and to apply uh, successfully behavioral uh, science uh, within organization first is about uh, this debate regarding the impact of bsi uh, intervention what is your uh, opinion on this the size of the effect and uh... yeah um so and the if I am to summarize the objection or um, the concern as I as I read and hear it from folks, it is um, the effect size from individual interventions or um, from many studies is relatively small, um, in some cases disappointing. Um, and therefore there might be other places um, for energy and resources, um, especially limited energy and resources to go instead of behavioral science. Um, and I think the idea that we should apply a highly critical lens to the effect sizes of individual interventions is really important. As a good practice, we should all be doing that all of the time um, in our own studies um, as you um, review the studies of others and consider what the applications might be in your own work or um, your own life. Um, I am personally um, inclined towards, uh, like, so let me tell you my personal inclination and then let me um, offer a bridge that I think might, um, might build between the two. Um, I think Michael's observation that behavioral science as a lens um, on problems um, offers one really important um, solution, that it actually says if organizations can, um, you know, as Dillip Soman would say, be behaviorally informed, if they can learn to think, act, learn, behaviorally informed, this in itself will be a material improvement um, on what we have today in many um, organizations which are not terribly behaviorally informed. So I do think that's a fairly important um, starting point. I can imagine that that could create for us in the um, debate here a shared reality. Like, can we all agree that it would be um, a desirable thing for our organizations, our institutions, our society to be more behaviorally informed? Now let's talk about how we do that, what it's going to take to actually make that happen. But that seems like a reasonable um, starting point for all of us. Um, one other area for exploration um, for us is to say, well, uh, but across a um, large um, population or um, over time, as we have the opportunity um, to stack interventions, um, even relatively small effect sizes um, might end up being um, quite useful, might end up being quite valuable, or of course lead us to further inquiry um, of larger and larger effect sizes. So I, I really hope that conversation starts by saying, like, what's our what's our shared reality here as a community, and is it a desire for a more behaviorally informed world? Um, second uh, criticism and topic where I would like to have your point of view is the failure uh, for BSI intervention to reach scale. At BCG, you work with a lot of global organizations. How do you ensure your interventions are scalable? Yeah, this is um, this I think is a challenge for all of us. Um, I do think um, that the the problem of scaling is not only a problem um, for behavioral science, by the way, I think this is a problem that um, is experienced in all kinds um, of domains. It is a problem that is experienced by anyone trying to make any kind of change. So I, I wonder um, if we could begin to say like the difficulty of reaching scale um, is the the difficulty of reaching scale is a 
is a feature of the process of change. Like the, the fact that we have not reached scale with a particular intervention is it, not a it's not a bug. It's a feature of the fact that it, it's very hard to make change scale well. Um, one implication um, of that would be okay. Like what we need is a science of scaling. Um, which, of course, is what John List and many others um, are working on. Like, how do we actually get from a promising RCT to an institution that operates very differently? That might be a good starting point. Like, what does the science of scaling look like? Uh, and maybe third criticism or question is about the ethical use of behavioral science. Do you have some uh, recommendation or do you have guidelines at BCG to ensure that you apply behavioral science or you're asked to uh, your client to uh, apply behavioral science in an ethical way? Absolutely, yes, um, we do. Um, I hope that everybody does. I am very encouraged by um, the dissemination and um, discussion around um, behavioral science, codes of conduct, the discussions around what it means to be um, an ethical behavioral um, an ethical behavioral scientist or an ethical um, an organization that is trying to ethically practice behavioral science. I mean I think ultimately all of those um, come back to um, you know, Richard Thaler's nudge for good principle. Um, and I think also thinking about how is the how do we nudge the institution for good? Is the institution working um, in the service um, of the greater good? Um, is it working um, to serve all of its stakeholders, not just um, serve the institution? And one of the um, places that um, where I thought Michael Holsworth's manifesto um, opened up a topic that deserves so much more attention, I was so glad to see it, was the um, importance of data science, behavioral science for equity. So not only do we have an ethical approach, are we clear that we are um, intervening in the service of outcomes um, that, the, that the users themselves are the best version um, that the user, the citizen, the employee, the customer um, would choose. Um, but are we also doing that? Um, and are we conducting our work in a way that is equitable? I hope we talk about that more in the months ahead. A uh, final question for me before, a uh, final question uh, from uh, Suzanne. Uh, what are your advice for leaders in organization who would like to start applying behavioral science? Um, pick one problem, work that problem all the way through um, to the end. Um, test as much as you possibly can. I sometimes think one of the um, reasons why we don't see more behavioral science, applied behavioral science inside um, very large organizations, especially large corporations, is some anxiety, some reluctance to, to experiment, to test. And I think the more that we um, can build comfort around the idea that um, testing is a service, testing is a way in which we get much better at serving um, our users, our customers, our colleagues, the easier the rest of um, the work of becoming a behaviorally informed organization um, will be. I think it is easy um, to debate for a very long time about where you might start, what good places to start might be, how um, you would do it. I think my advice is just start. So, Julia, we're close to the end of our conversation, sadly, but we'd like to wrap up by asking you your vision and maybe your hope for the future of behavioral science. I am incredibly hopeful for a world in which organizations um, think first about the humans that will be changing rather than the systems and processes that have to change. I'm really hopeful for 
um, richer, stronger collaborations between the like, extraordinary academic community building an incredibly rich repository of wisdom, advice about how human beings change, how they cope with a complicated and difficult world, and the leaders who lead that complicated and difficult world. And I think there is so much opportunity, there is so much wisdom already for those leaders to take advantage of. And it would be a tragedy if they did not it is an extraordinary opportunity if they do so. And that collaboration, I think, can only enrich all of us. Ultimately, the idea that a organization that is behaviorally informed, a leadership team that is behaviorally focused, this should be a very boring and ordinary idea. That's my hope for the future. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Julia, again. We were sure uh, with uh, Suzanne that our conversation would be uh, really great and insightful, and it was the case. Uh, so thanks uh, a lot. Is there anything you would like to leave our listener with, perhaps where uh, they can find uh, more about uh, you, your work at uh, BCG? We absolutely encourage you to follow our research on the science of changing at bcghendersoninstitute.com. You can follow it on bcg.com as well. Um, and we more than welcome you um, to read and share our weekly behavioral briefs. Okay, great advice. I am uh, already applying it. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks a lot uh, again, Julia. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Eric, for having me. What a pleasure. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.